Must be difficult, so much going on and nobody giving you information. It's been a crazy week. I remember I had a friend. She was one of the first women to move really high up. You know what it's like at the higher levels, every day putting out fires. But it turned out the job wasn't anything she thought it was. And she was looking the wrong way when they fired her. Interesting. Mm. Truth usually is, once you get to it. everybody this is ed hoffman and welcome to the 9-11 weekend edition of the main event this this week uh this year i got a good uh, uh a special show for you special show for you so the the second half of the show i'm going to uh play my 9-11 tribute that i recorded about 2008 or 2009 i've been on the radio for 14 years so uh, i don't remember if it was the first year or the second year on the air that I that I put that together, but it's a lot of uh, movie clips and uh, newsreels and music and uh, stuff that will uh, bring tears to your eyes and help you remember 20 years ago what we went through, how we felt, and uh, all the aftermath. The first half, the first half, I'm going to bring on uh, Kenny White. Who Kenny White? I introduced you guys to uh, to Kenny White, the uh, the host of the Southside Unicorn podcast. And you got to hear about a little bit of what he's about. He's just uh, another another one of us uh, outspoken, outspoken conservative guys that you know he's got the right to remain silent, but he just doesn't have the ability. So he's uh, he's just like me. So uh, and he he got a copy of the digital version of my book, Experience Matters. Here's mine, and uh, gave him a couple of weeks to to read it. And I told him, I said, hey. I want you to read it and you come up with any questions that you want and let's uh, give people what their, what their uh, impression is going to be uh, when they get this book. And uh, it comes out on, uh, it comes out this weekend. It's actually released by the time you're hearing this show. Um, it's released. So it's out there. You can get it on edhoffman.net. You can get it on Amazon, get it on uh, everywhere books are sold. Uh, Experience matters. Here's mine. Kenny, take it over, buddy. Wow. Well, I want to first say thanks for giving me the opportunity to ask you these questions and to get a preview copy of your book. That book is awesome. I I don't normally read books if it's not the Bible, you know, Mm -hmm. and once I put my eyeballs on the page, it just kept on going and it kept pulling me in and it kept, you know, the next page, the next page and wonder what this is about. And I won't look at you the same way again, Ed Hoffman. <laughs> you know, you, you when you begin to hear your life stories and the experiences in it, you you take you take on a whole different look. And I would say to the people out there, if you are an avid book reader, this is one you want to read. If you've never read a book, this would be a good book to start with. And if you have young people in your life, you have got to get this book for them. They may or may not read it in the beginning. We know how young people are. But this book is a is a, a reference resource book, in my opinion, from what I read. Uh, there are so many nuggets in there that a young person, they may only read a chapter when they're 20. They will be breaking their neck to get back to that book when they're 24. I mean, that's just what this this is a timeless book. And, and I want to thank you for writing it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's, uh, you know, my, uh, Don, Don pushed me year after year after year. And finally, in 2020, I made that my uh 
my New Year's resolution and around around June I said uh, I'm probably going to need some help with this and uh, uh, Brooke who's my uh, production assistant on the show she said hey I'll help you and two meetings a week for a year and uh, we were I think it was probably a year and two months to get all the get all the all the, the all the corrections and stuff done mm-hmm. and uh, it was fun it was actually fun yeah, you know, your your book, I'll say your book, you know, she's something else. You know, she's she's a taskmaster, but it's, she's a good taskmaster. Yes, um, she is. I would like to just get into these questions, you know, Ed, because when I'm reading the book, I'm like, these are things that your your book make me think about. And uh-huh. these are questions I would like to ask you so that the, the, the listeners will get a an idea of what the book Experience Matters contains for you. Ladies and gentlemen, you're gonna want this book. Uh let me just start with the first question. When you say experience matters, does that mean bad experiences too? If so, which has helped you the most, good or bad experiences? Um, absolutely, good experience and bad experiences. And I'll and I'll quote a movie, The Good Year, a good year um, with uh, Russell Crowe, and uh, where uh, um, the his his uncle tells him when he's a little kid says, "Hey, you know, it's uh, it's losing losing." You you learn things when you win. You learn things when you lose. But you especially learn things when you when you lose. You you get so much more wisdom from that. And least of which is how much more how much more fun it is to win. But you know what? Uh, the experiences that you have that are mistakes, bad experiences. Um, you learn from them. I mean, whether it's picking the wrong person for your uh, for your first marriage, um, you know, you learn from that because the next time you pick the right person because you know what you don't want. If you're, uh, I can say, in buying properties, my first round of properties that I bought and flipped, and as I started buying properties to keep and rent, I go, man, what if I understood this stuff three or four years ago when I was buying and flipping? Look how much money I left on the table. Um, and then when I, after I... I went to my, my next round of, of buying after the, after the meltdown. Um, there's a lot of properties that I bought earlier that I said, you know, had I known if I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't have bought these properties. So yeah, there's, there's lots of things, you know, and there's, you know, in, in promoting charity events and in doing business, business dealings, there's all kinds of stuff. You, you make mistakes, you make bad choices and, uh, and you have bad experiences and, and you learn from those, those things are lasting. There it is. You know, experience matters. Uh, my, my next question to you is when I when I first cracked open the book, one of the first things I saw is the rules, the rules you discussed in chapter one. Rule number one, your wife is always right. Rule number two, if you feel your wife is wrong, slap yourself and read rule number one again. This is this is in the first part of your book. It starts with the experience or lessons. Is there a reason you started with that? Um, mostly because my wife kept telling me I should write a book. And I say, what should I write a book about? Well, all the things that, all the things you do and all the things that you teach people and all the things that you've learned and over the years. And, uh, Don and I have been together for 33 years. So, um, so she's seen the transformation over those years. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, you know, who's gonna, who's going to want to see that? She goes, lots of people, lots <laughs> of people. And so she kept beating it into me. And, and as I talk about, the importance of learning from other people's experiences. When I met Rudy Rudiger, um, the, uh, the title, the title person in, uh, the actual person that the movie Rudy's about. And, oh, wow. and okay. he, and I, and I, and I, and I talked about meeting him and he goes, you know what? I only, I only played 27 seconds. 
And he mm-hmm. goes, he goes, had I not written the book about my quest to be a Notre Dame football player, no one would even, even know who I am. And he goes, and how, and had they not turned that into a, to mm-hmm. a movie and use the Hobbit, meaning Sean Astin, uh, to to play me. No one would even know. And and I had a chance to talk with him, and I had a conversation with him one on one for about ten minutes. And I said, and I said, so what I gained from your talk was you're an ordinary person that had an ordinary had an extraordinary experience, and and if you capture that one frame. That one frame of your life, which that frame lasted lasted four or five years, but if you capture that one frame of a of a of a whole life, there's a movie in it. There's a superstar. There's a superstar. Even star if it's story. only twenty seven seconds. Exactly, exactly. And you know, mm-hmm. people are inspired by that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I said, okay, hey, if so, if someone can can be inspired by some of the things that I've done, hey. All right. Well, there's a lot in the book that is longer than 27 seconds and so many questions come from it. I just want to keep going you know, ahead so that the, the listeners can get an abunction that this is a book you want to buy. My next question for you was, in your book, you give mention to the 2016 general election, mm-hmm. the election that changed the world and mentioned the man who won. I can't help but see the similarities between him and you. Where, where experience matters, would you say his experiences influenced you, and if so, in what ways? Um, you know what I, you know what's funny is is uh, Donald Trump. I read his book, um, The Art of the Deal, and I read it. I read it probably when he first got elected, and I had a chance to listen to him. You know, I I read his book, uh, uh, Think Big and Kick Ass. Um, around the time I actually got to hear him speak in New York at the uh, Real Estate and Wealth Expo, and you know what? I think people get hung up on the fact that people need to run this country, run this country. Politicians need to run this country. And because there's so much involved in the political process that you need to understand that. And I talk in the book about the 1992 election when Ross Perot came into the into the uh, into the election. And at that time, I thought Bill Bill Clinton was a scumbag. Uh, George H. W. Bush. I thought he was tired. I thought they beat him up for for retreating without completely going into Iraq and get rid of Saddam Hussein. Mm-hmm. And and Ross Perot came in and he made so much sense to me. And I said, you know, when you look at the taxation and the and everything that works, it, the country's a business. It is. They're taking half our paychecks and they're sending it to someone and. There and all these people that we elect are in charge of deciding where to spend that, and I just don't think they're smart enough to do that. And I think, and I and I was all behind Ross Perot, mm-hmm. and when me too, <laughs> and when Trump and when Trump came into the picture, I say, here's a guy that understands business. He under he's he's been through some hard times, he's been through some good times, and he's and he's a survivor. And that's how I look at the country. Mm-hmm. And I say, you know what? Instead of instead of electing electing people because of their skin color or because of where they came from or whether they've got a pedigree like a Kennedy or a, or a, a Bush, you know, let's talk about someone who can actually make smart decisions. Mm-hmm. And yeah, how, am I influenced by that? Absolutely. And when I, when I read the art of the deal, um, I'm, I'm reading the chapters as he's talking about this project and that project. He does the, the skating rink and he does this and he's going, you know, he's talking to somebody. And then from that, he goes into the next meeting and the next meeting, the next meeting. And I said, you know, that's basically how my day goes. 
Exactly. And, um, he, and he finished that skating rink ahead of schedule and ahead well, of budget, right? And, you know, he, he went into there and said, and said, well, hey, I can't believe it's taking this long. can't believe it's costing this much money. I'll take it over. And then he goes, I don't, I don't really know anything about skating rinks. I'm going to call the guys that do. So he calls the guys in Canada that build all the, all the hockey rinks mm-hmm. and has them fly down and says, hey, what's the best way to do this? Wow. And it's like, hey, you know, you got to understand, you got to know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. And go and and put some people that do know around you, and listen to them. And see that is detailed all throughout your book, Ed. I mean, there are things that we don't know, but your book helps put us on track. Whether it be when you should start saving. I mean, I didn't realize that if you start saving at certain ages, it makes a great difference. You know, again, Huge. a good reason to get this book. But I want to push through the questions because okay, I got go a little time with you. Um, I'm going to start with one of the quotes in your book, Mm -hmm. and then I'm going to go into the question and then let you answer it for us. Okay. Okay. In your book, there's a quote from you, Ed Hoffman, that says, something bad happens, I mouth off, and I get fired. Life is a series of good and bad experiences. In your book, you speak on your life in the restaurant business. In that life, you experience being fired. Looking back on that experience, what did you draw from it? Um, you know, I was working in the, in the restaurant business in my high school years and, uh, and then into my, into my beginning of college years. And I had an attitude. I had an attitude. I probably got a little bit of it from my dad. And I talk about how my dad wasn't a role model for me, but you know, I, we all get older and we start seeing things in our parents that, that we're becoming. And, uh, I had, I had an attitude. I knew I was. I, you were a bad boy. I was, I was smart. I was, I had natural smarts. Okay. And you know, I was known, I had, I had a lot of grades. I got grades in, in school and junior high and high school mm-hmm. where I'd get an AU. Hey, he mastered the stuff, but he's a clown and he gets done with everything and disturbs everybody other trying to make them laugh. And, um, but so we, that, we've learned over time that people with that same personality trait that you're espousing right now, they become you. <laughs> yeah. It's like uh, Steve Jobs says, the people that are that are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the people that do, you know, and I went through jobs and and hey, you know what? I'm I'm 16. I'm 17. I'm I'm 18. I see things that maybe some other people don't because some people are older and they and they and, you know, they've moved into their jobs. And I'm just I just have a I just have an eye for things and I notice stuff and I'd say, why? Why not? Why this? Why that? And I'll say something. And I just assume, Hey, I'm doing my job good. Mm -hmm. So what does it matter if I say something a little bit disrespectful? Mm -hmm. And, uh, if I had it to do over again, you know what I, if I had, and if I had to do, do things over, I probably could have held my tongue in certain spots. If I read some books that I read early in my adulthood before earlier, I probably could have kept some jobs Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I would, I, you know, I know I advise my kids on how to act at their jobs. Um, but you know what? It's life is is a is a is a uh, combination of experiences, and it's who we become. I don't know that I, I don't know if I did anything different today that I that I'd be the person I am. You know, I was going to say that Ed. I mean, you know, when you, when you think about a person's life, and and they say that the potter is, and we're just pottery, and the Lord is is shaping and, and molding mm-hmm. us, right? Every one of those experiences kind of moved the pottery this way. And then he put his thumb down and put the little indentation mm-hmm. in you, you know. So I see that. But, Ed, I want to just take a moment to, you know, because there's a part in the book, ladies and gentlemen, where Ed just, you know, espouses on his life experiences and some of the people 
that you know he's known throughout his life and he mentioned some of them by name um but i just want to mention one of those experiences and and, and get a little take from you before we get into the next questions mm-hmm. What's the difference between a Thanksgiving dinner and a barbecue? <laughs> you know, in in that part of the book, I'm talking about people that I remember in my in my early jobs, and and there was a point in when I was going to college. I'm working at Montgomery Ward's Bustin' Tires, and uh, you know, part time to help play my way through school. I went to Cal State Long Beach, and uh, and there's two black guys that I worked there, Willie Willie and Clay. Willie's a big, tall, skinny guy. And whenever mm-hmm. there was nothing to do, he'd go sit on a stack of tires in the in the in the storeroom and read his Bible. And Clay, Clay would Clay would just goof off, and you know we had a good time. We had a good time, mm-hmm. and we're all we're all doing our stuff. But I remembered uh, he was exper- like the Chris Rock at a tire shop. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They're funny guy, funny guys, and we all joked around. Even Willie, when he wasn't reading his Bible, we're all joking around, having fun. But um, but I remember that one Thanksgiving, they were open for a like a four hour tire thing tire uh, tire sale we're in there busting tires it's kind of hey everyone's gone home to start cooking their dinner mm-hmm. and we're you know we got another hour or something we're just hanging out and i said and uh and clay goes clay goes man i can't wait to get home have some barbecue i go it's thanksgiving aren't you don't you mean turkey he goes no i don't even like turkey he goes oh, <laughs> barbecue you know white people eat eat turkey you know we're having barbecue and i just go you know that that was one of the one of the things of of people that i remember that stuck in my mind and it just, you know, it's the memories, the things that you don't, you know, that was probably just a, a conversation passing, but the things that you remember just, it stuck years out. and years later. Yeah. You know, white people have Thanksgiving and the brothers barbecue. Okay. So that brings me into my next question because of your friend, you know, that was reading scripture and whatnot uh-huh. when he had the chance to, I'm going to quote a, a quick scripture and go into the question. In scripture, it said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Mark 10, verse 25. But now, Ed, in your book, you speak about becoming rich. And in that, you say, the government can't make you rich. Can you expand on this a little? Uh, Yes. So first of all, first of all, in talking about getting rich, um, good people do good things with their money. You know, uh, so getting rich is a great thing because you can help a lot of people. Mm-hmm. You can do a lot of good things with it. Um, but what I talk about in the in you know in the in the the bigger picture of government, I say you know what? Um, in my eyes, the government is there to protect us from our foreign enemies and to enforce laws and build us some nice roads. Right? And yeah, <laughs> yeah. Create the infrastructure, you know, the infrastructure like solar panels and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, not so, but they're, you know, they're there to, to, to enforce the laws that we decide we should have. And they're not there to make us rich. They're not there to make us happy. They're just there to create an environment where we can make ourselves happy. You know, hey, if you want to if you want to be lazy and work a little bit and and feed yourself and, you know, live on uh, top ramen and, and plain wrap <laughs> hot dogs, you have the right to do that. Mm-hmm. And if you want to work, work like a banshee, like I have all my life so that you can have some things that not everybody else can. If you want to if you want to work harder than most will so you can live better than most can. That's your See, opportunity as well. Ladies and gentlemen, he did it again right there. That's that's what I'm talking about. That's Ed Hopman stuff. So. I, you know, and I want to push on because I don't have just a few minutes with you. So uh-huh. I want I want to really Absolutely. get into this with this real quick. While reading your book, I hit nugget after nugget. And this one struck me among many. In your book, you say your corporate ladder was up against the wrong wall. That was very deep. Ed, this 
was this a turning point in your life? Was it an epiphany for you? I think it was. I think it was. I think uh, so. At the time, I was working at Sears, and I, you know, I got a promotion. I got a promotion. They sent me out to Riverside to run the auto center, and uh, and I'm and doing that, and I'm breaking all the records. And and I, you know, at that point, I don't know that I really knew where I was going to end up or where I was going. But hey, while I'm while I'm living, mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna you know, it takes eight hours to to get through an eight hour day. You can either kill time or you can work it to death. And I'm going to just be the best I can be at all times. And so I was setting records and we were making money. And then I get it called in and say, Hey, here's your, here's your rating review. And they tell me, you know, no matter how great a job I'm doing, you're not going to get any scores higher than this, your first year in management. And which, well, why, if I'm doing the job like that, why am I not getting those scores? And then they decide that they're going to make my, make my position, um, salary, which means I don't get overtime. And, uh, which means they get more out of you than you're going to get out of them. Exactly. Cause you know, I'm always a, a over producer. Mm-hmm. And so I'd put in the hours, I'd make sure things got done. I would watch my employees and, and take care of that and make sure, make sure the job got done and it was profitable. And, and quite frankly, at that company, the auto center is about the only, the auto center and the appliance department, the only two departments that are, that are, uh, profitable all year. And then everything, everything else loses until Christmas time. And, uh, and, and I saw as they, right? as, yeah, and, and as they, and as they cut out my overtime and they, well, here's your, here's your trade-off. We're going to give you this uh, charge card. That's a, a management card that has no limit. So you can just run yourself into debt. You know, I just saw the, saw the, you know, my boss goes, you know what? Sometimes you got to take sideways steps mm-hmm. to, to be able to open yourself up for forward, forward movement. I'm just going that. I'm Your looking, ladder's I'm up looking, against the wrong wall. I'm looking at him, and he's 35 years older than me, and I'm just going, mm-hmm. is that what I want? Mm-hmm. And I just start saying, you know, what do I really want out of life? Where am I going? What's my future? And it made me question question things and start looking at things a little different. And I think young people today need to do that. They need to pay mm-hmm. attention. Hey, what do you really want to do? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that thank you for that answer, because when you said your, your corporate ladder was up against the wrong wall, that was really gripping for me. I want to go on to the next question. Okay, real quick. I would recommend that people buy your book. I mean, this because, again, this is going to be a source reference book, ladies and gentlemen, that you're going to want to go back to at different stages in your life or perhaps when you're about to buy a home or maybe you may want to look at the real estate industry as, a, as an investment. This book will help you get there. But I, I want to ask you, Ed, will you do a quick reference? to how someone would know if they're meant to be self-employed or is it a process? I think it's a, I think it's a process. I don't think there's, you know, it's, it's, uh, you, you, you get the, the feel for your, your, your risk, how comfortable you are with risk and being self-employed, uh, is, is a risk Very in risky. that, in that <laughs> you have to, you have to sign the check on the front instead of on the back. And you've got to you've got to put yourself out there a little bit, just like investing in real estate and investing in a lot of things. And in my book, I I talk about you know assessing some of those things mm-hmm. and deciding you know are you someone who can work for work for yourself? And if you can't work for yourself, are you someone that can that can change your life by changing the way you you mm-hmm. save your money? And you know uh, in in real estate, I try to talk about my real estate investment experience. And I talk about it from someone who's, who's got a few thousand bucks and can buy a house yeah. that can buy an investment. I talk about ways to, uh, to make the, uh, to make the, 
use other people's money to, to get it started mm-hmm. and, and how I went from one house to a second house to a third house. And next thing I know, I, I own 18 houses. The next thing I know, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. rolling them into a commercial building and then, and which, which changed, changed my, my future. I totally still own that looking thing. At it. And then as you go back, how, how it changes and it's scary, it's scary mm-hmm. for everybody. Yeah. It's scary for everybody. And it's, it if you look at it too big and say, hey, I want to be Donald Trump, that's too big. That's it's too scary to look mm-hmm. at that. Start out with a house. So see, that's why I asked you that. You know, what would be your your idea of that? But then, you know, reading this incredible book of yours, who did you have in mind? Real estate people, business people, or the regular mo? When you made the book, I think uh, the regular mo uh, can get something out of this. And I think real estate. I think I think real estate people. There's a lot of people in real estate, and not everybody knows as much as they probably should. And uh, and I think everybody at every stage can get something from this because even after I became really successful in it, I'm still learning stuff. Thank you for writing the book. I want to thank you for following your wife's advice and taking number two and getting the book done. Absolutely. And uh, thanks for listening, guys. Stay tuned for five minutes of traffic, weather and commercials. And we'll be right back with my 9-11 tribute. I think we're going to have to remember September 11 in its reality much the same way as we have to remember other horrific events in our history. Because somehow I think it pushes the human consciousness toward finding ways to avoid this in the future. But if you, um, if you, if you censor it too much, if you try to find too many euphemisms for what happened, then I think you rob people of the ability to actually relive it and therefore motivate them to prevent it from happening in the future. This is Ed Hoffman, and welcome to the September 11th tribute to the main event. I recorded this show the first time in September of 2008, my first year on the air with the main event. It's a combination of clips from uh, speeches and documentaries and, uh, and newsreels and movie clips and some music to help you relive the emotions and the day that changed America, that changed the world and uh, changed many of our lives. I lost a high school friend that was on Flight 77 that hit the Pentagon, so you can bet it had a profound uh, effect on my life. Don and I visited uh, Ground Zero for the first time in October of 2002, which was probably the most emotional, patriotic experience of our entire lives, that trip to New York. And we've been there at least 10 times since. This uh, project took hours and hours and hours to put together. I can dare you to try and keep dry eyes listening to this 25 minutes. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did putting it together. I'm interested in your comments. Send your comments to ed at edhoffman.net. Enjoy. On a perfect, almost achingly beautiful late summer morning in early September 2001, a day of seemingly infinite visibility, one man later said, characterized by the rare and exquisite flying conditions airline pilots call severe clear. Life in New York and much of the rest of the contemporary world was changed irrevocably in the space of less than two hours. September 11, 2001 was the worst day in the history of the city. 
Everyone in the city should remain calm. The very best thing to do right now would be to remain home. I could see from the very beginning with the number of casualties and the tremendous damage that was done. And even the thought that we'd probably be attacked again during that period of time, that this was this going to be really, really difficult. I'd ask the people of New York City to do everything that they can to cooperate, not to be frightened, to go about their lives as normal. Everything is safe right now in the city. And the people who are doing the relief effort need all the help they can get. At 9.02 AM, little more than 15 minutes after the attack, millions of people in the metropolitan region and tens of millions more across the country and around the world were staring intently at the smoldering skyline of Lower Manhattan when a dark shape appeared on the horizon above the New Jersey lowlands and came hurtling across the upper bay. And then all of a sudden, I saw a big explosion of fire. And at that point, we all concluded, obviously, it was, it was, a, ter it was a terrorist attack. I think that was the first point at which I realized that we were into something different than any, any of us had ever prepared for, or any of us had ever thought we would live through. I realized I was in some kind of a horrible, awful, horrific human experience. I hear people say, we don't need this war. But I say there's some things worth fighting for. What about our freedom and this piece of ground? We didn't get to keep them by backing down. They say we don't realize the mess we're getting in Before you start your preaching, let me ask you this, my friend Have you forgotten how it felt that day To see your homeland under fire and her people blown away? Have you forgotten when those towers fell The resolve of our great nation is being tested, but make no mistake, we will show the world that we will pass this test. God bless. I don't know if you guys know it yet, this country's in war. Listen, I'm not, I'm not taking any more chances. We got stuff flying around we have no control over. And I don't want to board full of these planes hitting every building on the East Coast. This is a national emergency. Everyone lands regardless of destination. That's going to cost billions. Just do it. We have hundreds of international flights coming in. They're already in the air. No, no I, don't, I don't want any more international flights crossing the borders. They're going to have to go back where they came from. Nobody's coming into the country from now on. Everyone? Everyone. Shut off the East Coast. Shut off all the international from Europe. Shut off South America. Shut off the West Coast. Nothing over the top either. Canada? Yeah, Canada too. Can shut down the airspace? I can't accept Nobody takes off. Land them all. Take a moment. Think about this. We're going to put. We're going to shut down the entire country right now. That's right. Listen, we're at war with someone, and until we figure out what to do about it, we're shutting down. That's it. We're finished. This was an attack intended to destroy us, because we are a country that's built on principles of freedom, and because of free will, people get a chance to distinguish themselves. This wonderful American civilization emerges, which isn't based on any ethnic group, it isn't based on any one race, it isn't based on any one religion, it's based on people believing in freedom. We heard things hitting the sidewalk. 
and I thought it was debris. I think we all thought it was debris. And the windows on the west side of the building had already been blown out. So as I walked towards those windows, I realized it wasn't debris. These were people, people who were so desperate that they had jumped from whatever stories and they were landing. And it was a, a constant, the shrill of the pop as they hit the ground. And think about people so desperate that they would, they would choose that, that way to die. And they had to know they were gonna die. There's no way of, of surviving it. And that, that image will never leave. A mother described to me talking to her son on the telephone when the second plane hit. And that's the last time she talked to him. Another family described to me how their loved one had let two elevators go because he was older and the people in the elevator were younger. And somehow my, my, my mind went back to the stories and the things you read about the Titanic or you know, people who allowed other people to get on, get on boats and they didn't get on the boat because they were older. And from that moment on, I started thinking that we'll never know all the heroes. We know our uniform people were heroes. They went there and they died and they gave up their lives bravely trying to save the lives of other people. But what we don't know are all the individual stories of the person who gave up the elevator for another person, the person who calmed someone and got them out of the building, the person who organized their floor so that everybody could evacuate, the person who maybe at the last, in the last moments comforted people when all of them knew they were gonna die. We've got over 300 firefighters that are missing that uh, we can't account for. We believe that many of, uh, many of them are, uh, are, uh, are gone. We don't, um, we'll keep looking. Uh, we have hundreds of people over there now trying to find as many possible locations that they might be in, in some way, in a void or whatever. And, um, you know, still be able to breathe and, and still alive. But we believe that uh, most of these people, I think, are, are gonna be uh, un unable to, to pull out. Pastor, I gotta go down there. Where? New York. You can't. Only emergency responders are being allowed in. I spent my best years with the Marines. God gave me a gift be able to help people to defend our country. I feel him calling on me now for this mission. And then find a way to listen, Dave. And I started thinking about the people that might be trapped. Are there people trapped? If they are trapped, can they survive? And I remember thinking, this, I, this is like being in hell. Today is uh, obviously one of the most difficult days in the history of the city and the country. The tragedy that uh, we're all undergoing right now is something that we've had nightmares about, but probably thought wouldn't happen. My heart goes out to all of the innocent victims of this horrible and vicious act of terrorism, acts of terrorism. And our focus now has to be on saving as many lives as possible. What's the status here? Search has been called off. This whole thing is crap, man. Our guys are in there. They're dying in there. Looks like God made a curtain with the smoke, shielding us from what we're not yet ready to see. Do we know the number of casualties at this point, sir? I don't, I don't think we, we really want to speculate about that. The number of casualties will be more than any, any of us can bear, ultimately. 
and I don't think we want to speculate on the number of casualties. The effort now has to be to save as many people as possible. United States Marines, anyone can hear me, yell or tap. Some of the information was too brutal. I think I said that day that I don't think people could handle the full implications. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me that Beth's husband was Terry Haddon, who was the, who was the captain of Rescue One. And I looked over and I said to her, Is, was Terry working today? And she said, yes. And his tears came down her eyes. She looked at me and she said, he's dead. And I got angry. I said, you don't know that, Beth. You don't know that. And she said, yeah, I know that. I felt it and I know that. I was standing on the steps of City Hall. We all looked up and I knew that Terry would have been one of, on one of the, the highest floor that he could get to in that building, because that's just what his company does. And when I saw the building come down, I knew that he had no chance. His friend Tim told me that he saw Terry going in, and Terry said to him, we may not be seeing each other again, and kissed him on the cheek and ran up the stairs. We lost all those firemen. We lost police. We had this fantastic contradiction of people who hated you so much that they were willing to give up their life to take yours and people who loved humanity so much that they were willing to run into the Don building in the smoke and flame and just to save the life of somebody they never met. And that ineffably beautiful. There's no better definition of love. There's no, there's no more inspirational, no more inspiring, no more near to saintly conduct that you can think of than what they demonstrated. We, everybody should in their own way say, say a prayer ask God for help and for assistance and uh, and also ask God to give us the strength to overcome this because I know we're, we're going to need strength to overcome it and I want the people of New York to be an example to the rest of the country and the rest of the world that terrorism can't stop us. American democracy is much stronger than uh, vicious cowardly terrorists and we're going to overcome it. If you can hear me yell or tap, we hear you. Ah! Keep yelling. And 13! Bad BD down! Gotcha! Hang on, hang on, okay? Don't leave us with me here a long time! We're not leaving you, buddy. We're Marines. You are our mission. <laughs> that's great. Oh, that's great. It took all the footage off my TV. Said it's too disturbing for you and me. It'll just breed anger That's what the experts say If it was up to me, I'd show it every day Some say this country's just out of looking for a fight Well, after 9-11, man, I'd have to say that's right Have you forgotten how it felt that day? Going through a 
America today is on bended knee in prayer for the people whose lives were lost here, for the workers who work here, for the families who mourn. This nation stands with the good people of New York City and New Jersey and Connecticut as we mourn the loss of thousands of our citizens. I can hear you! I can hear you, the rest of the world hears you, and the people... And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. Chase Stadium served as a staging area for rescue supplies. And the New York Mets baseball team, overlooking its exalted status, banded together with other volunteers. We got a, we got a box of t-shirts here. People came in from Wall Street who had walked home and two days later, you know, I need to do something, I have to help, what can I do? I had that same feeling that, that so many uh, other Americans had of just, to, I needed to do something. The Yankees, too, pitched in. Following the team's first post-9-11 gathering, manager Joe Torrey led a group of players on a goodwill trip downtown. We went to the armory, which was the most emotional, and we didn't really know if we should be there. This is where families were all gathered to wait on word if their loved ones were alive. weren't alive, uh, evidence that they weren't alive, so they were doing DNA samplings. I, I remember one very poignant moment when Bernie Williams went up to this woman, and he was sort of fumbling, and he, and he says, I, I, don't, I don't know what to say. He says, but you look like you need a hug. And he put his arms around her, and I, and I think sort of broke the ice to see that, you know, these people needed this. And I think at that point in time, I realized that there was a role for us. But I'll never forget where I was, and I'll never forget that day. And I remember taking a bus home at night at about 11.30 at Amsterdam on 116th Street. And how quiet the street was. There was an eerie silence, like nothing I'd seen in more than 30 years of working there. And then I remember when the bus came that there was a sign around the little box there that said, no fare today. And I remember sitting on the bus, and sitting opposite a young woman who was just crying. And I remember when I got off the bus at 83rd Street, she was still crying. I remember just putting my hand on her shoulder. And I said nothing, and she said nothing, and I got off. But I'll always remember that woman. We have to cry, and we have to mourn and we have to feel terrible and awful. And on the way over here, I cried in my van because I had to go to the morgue to identify some. But I, the tears have to make you stronger. Every time you cry, you have to remember that we're right and they're wrong. In the aftermath of September 11th, the mood of the country changed. Baseball games became communal gathering places for fans to express their emotions. 
and as much of the country turned a sympathetic eye to New York. The Red Sox ask you to join us in a tribute to the spirit of the people of New York. The city's baseball teams became the objects of affection. I could not, under any circumstances, ever imagine cheering for the Yankees. But I think America's sense of New York changed in September 11th and, and the days afterwards. The face of New York changed. It was 343 New York firefighters who walked into the fires of hell to save strangers. And it becomes very difficult to hate the Yankees. Another reason for the heightened security was the appearance of a guest from Washington. All of a sudden, there was a knock at the door, and President Bush walked into our room. Well, when you're president, all you have to do is say you're showing up, and they kind of ask you to throw out the first pitch, no matter what time of year it is. So I go underneath the Yankee Stadium, in the bowels of Yankee Stadium, and there's a hitting cage there. And he's wearing his bulletproof jacket, and he's getting his arm loose, and Derek Jeter comes up to him. So I just asked him if he was going to be throwing the first pitch from the mound or in front of the mound. The president said, I don't think I'll throw from the base of the mound. Jeter said, I wouldn't do that if I were you, Mr. President. And I told him, uh, you better throw it from the mound, otherwise you're going to get booed. I said, this, this is Yankee Stadium. I said, OK, I'll throw from the mound. And he's walking out, and he looks over his shoulder, and he says, don't bounce it. They'll boo you. All of a sudden, the pressure mounted. The president of the United States. I'd never felt what I'd felt before when I walked out of that dugout. I felt the raw emotion of the Yankee fans. USA! 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 The crowd just erupts in a chant of USA. There is nothing like it that I've ever experienced at a ball game. It, it was overwhelming. It was just overwhelming. President Bush is standing out there like a brick wall. I'm not afraid of terrorists. I'm going to stand all out here. I'm going to give you a thumbs up, and I'm going to throw a strike. I didn't vote for him, but at that point, my personal feelings about him as a politician is gone. I watched him, and he was my representative, and I had never felt that way before. Very nice throw, Mr. President. Good stuff, good stuff. At that moment, everybody there was there for baseball and to show the world that in spite of what can happen to us, we'll pull ourselves together, and what is our life and our way of life will continue. United, we stand. We stand together in the face of this threat. We will play baseball in the midst of the, the beginnings of this war. No matter what the threat may be to us, the United States of America will stand strong and will never be intimidated. Have you forgotten all the people killed? Yes, some went down like heroes in that Pennsylvania field. Have you forgotten about our Pentagon? Have you forgotten?
One of the tricks in life is to convert everything into good. You're a sculptor and you have a stone and the stone has a scar in it. And well, so now you have to sculpt around that scar and you've got to use that scar to, to make it part of whatever it is you're going to produce that's beautiful. And um, work with what you have, play it as it lies. You know? So whatever the circumstance, you know, use it for good purpose. 9-11, how can you possibly use it for good purpose? You think about it. You think, as uh, we've suggested before, you think about, look, what this reminds you of is the importance of your own life and making the most of it, because you, you can lose it in a flash. And if that's all you learned from 9-11, if that's all you remembered, that, my God, you could extinguish life so suddenly, so unexpectedly, and it could happen to me, and therefore, I should think harder about the way I spend my life instead of just wasting it. Now, it's not going to teach you what to do with your life, but it will teach you to do with your life. God bless America, land that I love, stand beside Thanks for listening to the September 11th tribute on the main event. I'm interested in your comments. Email them to me at ed at edhoffman.net. Also, if you want to share this tribute with anybody, you can find the podcast at edhoffman.net.